0: We've made the crucial critical error of letting our children know that they can request songs to listen to. Oh god,
1: yeah. So, just that's a
0: word of warning to uh-huh. everyone. Um because my my middle child is obsessed with that song um I love it by Icona Pop and Charlie XCX, which uh. I I loved too, but now I hate it. I hate it. My I don't care. I hate it.
1: So, he's going to be like,
0: "Tell me all about it," and I'm going to be I like, "I'm think. a dum dum." I'm a dum-dum. Where are all my pillow heads at?
1: I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a a writer.
0: And I'm a writer, (sighs) bud. Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Michael Zapata. He's a founding editor of Make Literary Magazine and the author of the novel, The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, winner of the 2020 Chicago Review of Books Award for Fiction, finalist for the 2020 Heartland Booksellers Award in Fiction, and a Best Book of the Year for NPR, the AV Club, Los Angeles Public Library, and Book Page, among others. He is the recipient of an Illinois Arts Council Award for Fiction and the City of Chicago Dcase Individual Artist Program Award. He is on the core faculty of Story Studio Chicago and the MFA faculty of Northwestern University. As a public school educator, he taught literature and writing in high schools servicing dropout students. He currently lives in Chicago with his family. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, Lindsay and Alex. Welcome, Mike. You bet. Absolutely. We're
0: so happy to have you on.
2: <laughs> very excited.
0: What are you going to read to us?
2: So I'm going to read from just a short section from The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. And mm. um, I did want to read just a short section. Of- about. Um, a moment in which family is, is happy, <laughs> a very quiet uh, moment. And the only thing you need to know is that the Dominicana and the old mad pirate are married and they have a son named Maxwell. Okay, cool. I'll start right there. And it's early on in, in the novel. One added benefit to the old man pirate moving in was that the Dominicana had more free time. During the morning, she kept Maxwell home from school, which she told him on more than one occasion when he pleaded to go would only poison his mind. Instead, at the kitchen table, she went over Spanish, English, history, literature, philosophy, sciences, and math with him. He particularly excelled at math. Once, when the Dominicana asked her son why she thought this was the case, he just shrugged, smiled, and told her that he could solve math problems either on paper or with his eyes closed. It didn't matter, and sometimes even in his dreams. During the late afternoons and some evenings when the Old Man Pirate and Maxwell wandered the city together, she went to the library and continued her studies with Afra, Afra is a librarian. By this point, all Afra had to do was suggest a novel or two and send the Dominicana off into a quiet corner of the library to digest it. She spent long humid evenings reading until the Old Man Pirate and Maxwell came to walk her home or on some occasions bring her dinner when they had bought her, which they had bought her in the city markets. When her husband wasn't working, he came with Maxwell. On these nights, the pirate and his son would hide behind bookshelves in a variety of hide-and-seek and watch her read. The pirate would whisper to his son that he had a very beautiful and brilliant mother, and Maxwell would nod. Then the pirate and his son would cough loudly, making their presence known, and the Dominicana would put her book down, playing her part as the seeker, the heroine. Afterward, While walking home, the pirate and her son would ask her what she had been reading and she would describe the novel she had read in great detail. Then the Dominicana and her family would make up stories about Babylon or mortal warriors or space travel after which they would walk in silence through the gray and rose-colored streets of New Orleans and think about the possibility of their stories as if thinking about them made them real, which was a true reflection of literature and happiness. In particular, the Dominicana enjoyed the horror and science fictions of North America and England, H.P. Lovecraft, Ambrose Bierce, H.G. Wells, and Mary Shelley, whose Frankenstein she thought had marked the dawn of a new and terrifying era. In addition to the lesser known writers she found in literary magazines and pamphlets dedicated entirely to the genres. While she couldn't be certain why she enjoyed these writers, she thought it might have something to do with the sorts of people who came from empires, people who suffered from a sense of unreality. But through unreality, the Dominicana thought, they understood at least one important thing, that people could be other people, cities could be other cities, and worlds could be other worlds. One night as Maxwell's mother was helping offer for a reshelve books, she found a cutout, times Pigani article about the British explorer, Percy Fawcett, who in 1925 had set out for the Amazon in search of the lost city of Z, only to disappear. She remembered a similar story her mother had often told her about a Spanish conquistador who set out into the Amazon in search of a city of gold and eternal life, never to return. The story used to horrify her, but she had also been enchanted by it. The discovery of the Times Picayune article, which coincided with her childhood memory, gave the Dominicana an idea for a science fiction novel about a heroine from the Dominican Republic. Later that night, she told her husband about her idea, and he suggested, insisted even, that she write it down before she changed her mind. Shortly after, Aphra let her borrow one of the library's typewriters, and she set to work on a novel entitled Lost City. And I'll stop right there.
0: I love that you read that section. I love that her experience of learning how to read uh, also corresponds with her learning how to write, you know, because mm-hmm. it feels like something we all have to learn as writers, that reading is writing and writing is reading.
2: Yes, and it overlaps. And, and you know, there was this, you know, this takes place in the 1920s, and I found in, in oral records in Chicago and, uh, and and in New Orleans these extraordinary librarians, you know, mm. extraordinary almost socialist librarians. Many of the times, <laughs> who who really took it upon themselves when you know exiles and immigrants and refugees showed up in both cities um, to teach, you know, teach English and teach writing. But what was particularly interesting is it's usually people from the same language, right? So you had in Chicago Polish librarians. Mm-hmm. who were both teaching both how to write, how to read in Polish and English. And in this case, it's Spanish with Dominicana. And it's, um, it was just fascinating, you know, to, to look at the history of librarians is like almost this this rebellious sort of um, beautiful place where yeah. where people could show up and and sort of exist between two worlds and two languages and mm-hmm. learn how to navigate both.
1: Was the research you did... For Adana Moreau, Mike, stuff that you were doing, can like while you were drafting, or is this the kind of thing that you had done at the front end and then began to write? Um, how did how did the the research that went into the book coincide with the actual? Yeah,
2: drafting? yeah, a lot of a lot of it was coinciding. You know, I always I always wanted to research. Um, I did a lot of research about Katrina. I knew the book would be in some way revolve around Katrina so I did a lot of research about Katrina beforehand um, you know but it wasn't until I started writing and sort of placed where I wanted where I was happened to be writing almost you know sentence by sentence to some degree I would stop and you know do a lot a lot of research and sort of consume the research that way a slow process you know this book took seven years mm-hmm. um, and I say that now um, with two kids and I'm like what took me so long? <laughs> but I think <laughs> I think you know because you don't have any time now but I I think Um, For me, like that process of research and figuring out what it meant to sort of like, you know, be a historian by night in order to write a novel, like it felt good just to take long and and do the deep research. It wasn't until I found oral traditions and oral sort of the oral histories in libraries um, before things started to click, though, you Mm -hmm. know, I was always like swamped by research, but it was those first person accounts that made me feel. Um, like I can tell a story.
0: Yeah, who were you? Who were you reading? You know, like what? What yeah. books were you reading to get those? That you know, those first person accounts.
2: Especially for so the books I was reading, um, especially for that, largely I was reading a lot of Studs Terkel. I was listening yes. to a lot of his old radio stations. I was reading. I read Hard Times like three mm-hmm. or four times because,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, his ability to ask questions—it's it's just extraordinary—and his ability to pull like the interiority and intimacy of a story. You know, like you think about mm-hmm. p- meeting people on the street you go up to a stranger and you're like, how am I going to get this person to tell me their story? <laughs> you know, he had like this magic um, interview ability. Um, but I also went to the Chicago History Museum and then the New, New Orleans Historical Collection. And I requested, um, they have both, both of those museums and libraries have um, first person accounts, diaries of people crossing the Atlantic mm. or um, Dominican and Haitian refugees who showed up in New Orleans. There's always these letter exchanges, and so it was by act of those librarians that I was able to really read those first person accounts, and, and some of those voices made their way into the book. Um, but that's what I like. I said that's that's sort of the process of going back and forth to the librarians, and the process of writing kind of coincided. So you were working
1: on this book before you moved to New Orleans.
2: I was. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was yeah. trying
1: to, I was trying to get the, the, the timeline together. I was yeah. like, Oh wow. Okay, cool.
2: It was, you know, it was one of those strange, of course, this is kind of thing that happens in New Orleans where, um, so I've been going to New Orleans multiple times a year since I've been at like 20. Hmm. Um, I was actually, I went to university of Iowa and I won first place in a, in a Halloween costume contest. I won like seven hundred dollars for dressing up like Jesus. What?
0: What? Yeah. Yeah. When I was for like, dressing up like what? Jesus. <laughs> like dressing up like yeah, <laughs> which is
2: my mother is Jewish, my dad's Catholic, so I didn't really have you know. It was the obvious thing to dress up as when you're twenty. So I won like seven hundred bucks, and I did what a lot of what I later found out with, you know they call them greenbacks because a lot of farmers from the Midwest would take their cash at the end of the season, and then go to New Orleans. So it was like I felt okay. like I read that I won the seven hundred bucks, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to. <laughs> and I, I did, it's one of those, you know, ethereal otherworldly cities. And since I've been 20, I've been going two, three times a year. Did you so
0: I moved there eventually? Were you Great. going there for Mardi Gras to start or were you just going there just in general? I wasn't,
2: you know, it wasn't until years later that I went to my first Mardi Gras. must have yeah. been six or seven years later. I was I going. I think that's, that's the authentic experience
0: it. then. Yeah. The fact that you went not for Mardi Gras and then you worked your way toward Mardi Gras. Yeah family that lives in new orleans and i and i'm going to oh. go ahead and, and call that authentic on your part
2: <laughs> thank you well that's that's like a gift thank you yeah i mean it's <laughs> thank you Lindsay. Great. you know it might my, my um my dad's from ecuador and all my all of his family lives there and i've lived in ecuador a few times and, and have, you know grew up visiting there and there was something about you know going to new orleans where it was like this city is latin america mm-hmm. you know it's it's for lack of a better term, it's, you know, spirituality. I'm an atheist, but there's no other place I felt that had like a contingent aura about it or something, <laughs> like it sort of infects you. But really what that was, was a strange familiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Going to Ecuador growing up as a kid and, and uh, feeling, feeling some, not only the architecture, but the way people walk, talk on the streets, the way time slows down, all of it felt very um, Latin American to me.
0: I Yeah, I I feel like every time I go there, it's just constant music. Um, yeah, like oh. that, that, you don't, you don't experience it in the same way, like sound is different, almost, yeah. you know, it's just like you walk from song to song, and they bleed into each other. And yeah. it's not even that there's marching bands, you know, like, it's, it's just people are always listening to music, playing music.
2: No, I yeah, New Orleans partitioned my soul. I miss it deeply. I'm very happy to be in Chicago. I grew up um, in Chicago and outside of Chicago and I've lived here most of my life, but it partitioned my soul. I'm always half in New Orleans in my head.
0: Yeah, I mean what what two better cities, right?
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> each like Chicago. They complement each other. So well, like New Orleans has this, this, you know, the community itself revolves around very non-capitalist ideals, right? Mm. Mardi Gras doesn't have corporate sponsors. Like mm. that's like a mind blowing thing um, when you look at sort of like any other American cele- celebration, but it's very much, sur- you know, very much, the crews are, are, are sort of like, sort of the centrifugal community force where they also raise money for social causes and neighborhood and uh, mutual aid funds. And then of course in Chicago, the, the people and the systems that draw me closer are also you know um socialist you know directly fighting those mm-hmm. overt capitalist forces so it's like it's it's this strange sibling i always view them as like sibling cities
0: <laughs> one of the things i love so much about the book is it feels like a story i mean it is like it's all storytelling right but mm-hmm. it also feels like a story that you could tell your children and with that in mind i was taking my boys to go pick up some pie um and i i thought i'm just going to play this for them because i, I yeah. think of a moment that I had been listening to that, that they couldn't have also listened to. Yeah. And it happened to be the, po- the moment when there's that, <laughs> that scene where the billionaires are naked and oiled up. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the one moment.
2: <laughs> and,
0: like leading up to that, leading up to that, uh-huh. there's this whole talk about like, you know, the just absolute body um, Tawdriness of American values. And, and I'm like, yeah, my kids should hear this. And then there's the, cor- <laughs> the the billionaires fucking each other. And then there's a line that says America will entertain itself to death or something, something yeah. along those lines. And I was like, okay, I'm still, I'm still going to let them listen. <laughs> my eight-year-old was just like, that was a bad word. And I was, like, that
2: was a bad word. <laughs> Next. Who are these people? Mom? <laughs> oh
0: but it's, I did wonder to myself if if you if any of this came from you telling stories to your children you know like where
2: yeah. like
0: what the tone came from as you were writing
2: I thought about a lot so in, in the middle of writing this we had my first son my my children are um they're still pretty young uh three and a half and one and a half mm-hmm. so they are you know both both in overlapping that toddler age um but in in the process of writing the book and, and towards the end of it um I remember doing major, major line edits right after my first child was born. And, you know, as when you have a kid, it forces you to sort of think about sort of your, um, you know, your lineage. It forces you to think about, you know, I, I, of course, I've been a son and a brother. um, You add this new role as, as parent. And I, I felt the only thing I could vaguely remember sleeplessly is, as I'm sure every parent is familiar with, like, I feel like, the boundaries or the periphery of your emotional capacity gets like pushed in both mm-hmm. directions right like mm-hmm. love you know i've never felt that capacity of love just like whole complete capacity but then also fair right mm-hmm. like anything that happen i think there's um samantha schweblin has this extraordinary book called fever dream mm-hmm. and there's a character in that that um She, um, this character sort of obsesses over something she calls rescue distance Mm. between her her mom and her child. So like, I always like, I think about that. Um, What is rescue distance? So rescue distance is that sort of, sort of the quantum thinking of how much effort or how far um, would I need to act to rescue my kid if they were in trouble, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: right? It's Mm -hmm. it's so the younger they are, of course, it's, it's a smaller distance, but still scary. Um, and I think in the course of like revising the book, I I thought a lot about sort of fatherhood and family and and sort of how this at the core is sort of like a a book about sort of family that was broken up due to exile and, you know, things like the great depression or Mm -hmm. the Atlantic crossing, Katrina, um, Katrina. So these sort of historical forces that break up the family, which is, which has forced me then as a young father to have to sort of consider the language what does that look like on paper mm-hmm. um, what does that feel like I think it I think in some degree I don't think the book would have been what it is if I hadn't been uh, a young you know if I hadn't had a young kid at, towards the end of writing it hmm.
1: were you teaching high school in new orleans as well or did you end up doing a different kind of teaching when you guys moved from chicago to new orleans before you? yeah moved back?
2: Yeah. So in Chicago, yeah, I taught um, high school dropouts for 10 years here in Chicago. Um, and when I moved to New Orleans, I thought, um, you know, I had been teaching for some time. I was going to take a break, try something different to try to write more and have more time to write. I actually went down without a job. Uh, my wife is a teacher. She's an art teacher. And so she had a job down there, um, mm. which was like kind of terrifying. You know, I grew up first generation. I grew up working in class. I had a good union job, <laughs> you know, like leaving a good union mm-hmm. job terrifying mm-hmm. you know and you hear your parents and grandparents voices like don't leave a good union job but i anyway. left
0: i left a good union job to right after i graduated from grad school and just yeah. recently the other day i was like oh my god i would have been like pension level by now yeah no oh, yeah yeah
2: there's that scary <laughs> and my wife's a teacher so we're we're still a strong union family that's you know, good <laughs> but, um, but it is scary and it was something i struggled with a lot um because you know I had been you know I started a literary magazine and in my 20s I wrote for a lot of like theater productions and things like that but you know at the core of it I was always circumnavigating that I wanted to write a novel hopefully more and I sort of just took that chance and said you know I could always come back to teaching and I went down there without a job but I I sort of was accidentally hired as an academic advisor at Tulane University. Why accidentally? Uh, um, Because I um, sort I applied I applied like a day or two before I moved. And wow. then I had like an interview and I was hired like the day that we stopped in Memphis with all of our <gasps> stuff. So I actually gosh. showed up in New Orleans with a job but had gotten it the night before oh my gosh. <laughs> in a hotel in Memphis. So, amazing. Um, and I, I, was, I worked for uh, academic advising for the sciences, which I loved because it allowed me to you know exist in that world except for just like English or literature. And it's New Orleans the pace of work um is slower it, it was really a good balance from like working 60 70 hours a week as a high school teacher to you know just having the job you go in at the university and um having the space and time to think about literature more
1: I yeah I I remember I doing a, you know a couple weeks or a month of student teaching with you Mike back yeah. when you were at Antonio Pantoja and I remember yeah. coming away from that experience and thinking I could not teach high school,
2: <laughs> period. Well, I'm glad I had that effect on you.
1: <laughs> it was just, I just, I yeah, didn't, it's, a lot. it's just, I just remember thinking this is like a job and a half every day yeah, I, yeah, yeah. by itself. I couldn't, I just remember being in awe of how much effort it took to really do it well. And, and you I, did it uh, very well, but you. it was just, thank uh yeah, it was inspiring to, to witness that. But I just remember thinking, yeah, I'm not, I'm not as tough as my buddy yeah. Mike here.
2: <laughs> you did, I mean, you did you did a kick-ass job. I remember the writing lesson you did with the skydiver.
1: Oh, right, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I
2: loved it. I loved it. <laughs>
1: um,
2: yeah, yeah, I, I adore and love teaching. I, I've taken on some teaching gigs now. Um, like I'm teaching a summer class at Northwestern and I teach for Story Studio. So more along the lines of, you know, creative writing. But I miss it. I do miss. I truly, at the end of the day, I miss teaching high school students. I miss sort of the rebellious energy. I remiss, mm. I miss their radar on BS. Mm. You know, adults are so bad because we have to make a million decisions that sort of don't put our own, uh, that don't put ourselves at the forefront, right? So we're always making these concessions. Like adults traditionally won't make all these concessions about their lives by necessity. but high school kids have this perfect BS, you know, they, they tear apart someone like Ted Cruz, right. like faster than, you know, faster than, you know, some, you know, liberal, someone who's no, tweeting, so they, they have, and I miss that. I miss. So a lot of them are, are in this book too. Cause I was, you know, writing the first draft when I was teaching my dream, my, my absolute dream would be to write part-time and then teach high school part-time. Oh, cool. Love college students. I've worked with college students for six years now, but, um, there's something about that energy with high school that I miss.
0: Sure. What do you think it it feeds into your writing?
2: You know, and I, I was working and you saw, you know, first generation, a lot of my friends growing up didn't graduate high school or they dropped out. And so I was teaching students who dropped out of high school. So it was a particular situation in which the students were coming already with a sense of how society has failed them mm-hmm. um, and not only failed them, but there's a. You know predatory nature and the institutions that they were forced to interact with whether that was the city or companies right Um, whether they were working for minimum wage or just trying to get ahead so they 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 think they impacted the way thought about storytelling in general you know what what if you're exiled from the city you live in what if um, what if you're just trying to get day by day and there's just like the city is a grind um, not necessarily, sort of like you know, the city in a in a metaphorical sense. Like getting a parking ticket could ruin your day, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Or the nature of inequity in schools. Um, and they came with an awareness of that. And then you know, walking into the classroom every day, students I had, um, you know, as Alex knows, students were working the night shift to help their families. Students were young parents. Students were leaving gangs. Students mm-hmm. were brilliant punk rockers who decided at sixteen that you know, f it, like you know, the big school has nothing for me, LGBTQ community, uh, students who, um, were forced out of their neighborhoods by family or friends. Mm, and then nice. they found a second family, you know, at our school, which was small. So it taught me a lot about writing. It taught me sort of the, the sense of like, it's a very almost benign and boring fact that the way forward is for people to be decent to each other. Mm. Um, and so I think it changed the way I think about fiction in that sense.
0: Yeah. I've been thinking lately about like this sort of necessary uh, like juxtaposition of serving your community and writing. Um, mm-hmm. Cause that's sort of how I started. My writing career was like teaching workshops in halfway houses and homeless wow. shelters and um, you know, like schools for troubled girls and, yeah, and stuff wow. like that. And it, and it, it's, it's so it it really does um, you know, it opens your eyes to a lot of things that your privileged little ass doesn't see. Mm-hmm. But it also um I don't know, it it like includes them in the audience that you're thinking of as you're writing, right? Mm-hmm. Like and it makes it, it sort of expands it and broadens it and also like really makes it more specific. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly. No, but it's just it makes something I've been sense. thinking about lately.
2: In storytelling itself, like I have always think of it in terms of like, you know my first literature was at the dinner table. You know, my dad, Mm -hmm. um, my dad's just an enormously talented storyteller. Um, And, you know, I, my mom's family is Jewish. And so we carried with them a hundred years of Chicago history. And Mm -hmm. I knew my great grandmother until I was 13. And so we walked at the dinner table and she walked as a girl from pogroms in the pale settlements, you know, now West, Western Russia, she walked mostly across Europe and ended up in New York and then Chicago. So like these stories were at My dinner table and my dad himself, you know, he's just, he tells jokes that take 45 minutes, but they're sort of like, they're they're built into his life. Classic dad. Yeah, classic dad. He's very good at them. You know, he kind of like enters this like stand up comedian realm, very, very smart and gentle. Um, But yeah, that was my first, you know, that was my first literature and my dad was a jewelry caster and so I would work with him in the summers and on the weekends and he was in Jewelers Row so that's where oh wow i would go with him and Jewelers Row is predominantly you know at the time when I was a kid too it was predominantly Latin American Central American and Jewish immigrants hmm. um it was, it was sort of like a spiritual home <laughs> for someone who's biracial yeah <laughs> uh, really. with both of those things but you know a lot of that jewelry sort of working class business is storytelling and and you know there's something very um built into the fabric of like selling jewelry that is familial right you have family stories that come with old wedding rings or people starting families and so you have for me I that was my first literature and most storytelling in the world is not on paper you know most of it's not novels and I feel very um I feel very fortunate to be able to contend with stories on paper but it, my students and then growing up always help remind me that that's not that's not all that's not where stories just exist
0: it's true. My my eight-year-old has been telling us these epic tales at nice. night and he just like stomps around his room in a circle and like twirls and jumps and throws I himself on his bed. And and that's how he <laughs> thinks through it. You know, like he's like telling it to us, but he's very, very active as yeah. he tells it. And I recently said like, number one, because I was really tired and I wanted to go downstairs, <laughs> but I was like, Hey, tomorrow, why don't we do this in the daytime? And as you're telling me the story, I will type it out. And he was like, why? <laughs> what's the point mom he was like I no (laughs) like that's not the point here you know like I'm telling a story that's what storytelling is and I was like okay yeah
2: mom this this will exist before and after novels that's right (laughs) that's
0: right had to respect it oh my
2: goodness (laughs) (sighs) oh I love it I love it My, my oldest is three and a half and he he is starting to get to that sense where he like tells stories that have like you know like one major conflict it's a rock monster Uh,
0: (laughs) or something like that there's always poop in my child's story so it's just like poop is very prominent (laughs) magical property
2: (laughs) one thing you know one thing that was really interesting when he was when when he started talking i don't know if he was like a year and a half i think he was like two years but he looked at a plane in the sky and he called it a like a sky whale he thought it was like oh my god, it was just so adorable right it's very adorable but I was like, this little shit just invented the metaphor for himself <laughs> the first time, right? Like, I was like, this is amazing that that is, uh, I never had understood, you know, metaphors are a tough thing, right? Like, there's yeah. so, so much about how humans think and how we tell stories, and they're sort of, like, integral to survival. And, and that was, like, as far as I knew, his first one, you know, at maybe accidental, but it uh, really kind of blew me away, like, oh. He, okay. So he's seeing things as another, oh my gosh, wow. it was kind of a nice insight in the language. And I always wanted to ask like a linguist about that. Like what do kids, what is their, what happens to their brains when that happens?
0: And it's so fast. I mean, like it's, there's just a million things happening at once. Mm-hmm. It's just sit back and watch, you know?
2: Yeah. While you're tired, you know, while, while you're, you're exhausted
0: and like, please <laughs> go to bed. Go <laughs> my middle child, sometimes he'll get real caught in the like, but tomorrow will be today. Oh yeah, yeah. It was today, tomorrow. <laughs> if we stay up late enough, I know. And he'll just like, and he'll just, it will drive him nuts. And he'll just start like yelling and like almost <laughs> crying, like, but oh. yesterday was today and now today. Yeah. And it's just like, I know, but, but
2: <laughs> especially during a pandemic. So he's yeah, right. It's <laughs> true. Temporality true. doesn't exist. So. Yes.
0: Oh,
2: my <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: mentioned you- uh you mentioned jeweler's row mike and mm-hmm. i had to i had to ask you did you ever eat at the oasis cafe
2: oh all the time oh my god all the time yeah i it's
1: not- fucking am obsessed with that yeah, yeah yeah yeah, it's,
2: it's good and it's, it's at the,
1: yeah it's just this crazy restaurant Lindsay, where you have to walk through a jewelry store to get to the restaurant what? and it's mm-hmm. like you know in the back you can get like yeah. hummus and shawarma and all, oh, all the great yeah. stuff and uh yeah. i i based this this, in the novel i've been working on forever i i had to put it in there because i was just like this is like it's just like that place is so huge in my mind i'm like it's one of those places i i I miss with the pandemic i'm like god i wish i could go to oasis cafe
2: and I, I grew what up going to those lots of those drawers, cafes, um, you know, um, the Pittsfield building where my dad had his shop for a while. At the center of the Pittsfield building, there's this like, you know, old school Chicago cafe. So oh, I gotta shop. look it up. Awesome. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I work during for my day job, I work um, as an at SAC School of the Art Institute. Oh, yeah, right a, there. As an academic advisor. So it's right across the street. Yeah. Wait, you do uh, now? I do now. Yes. That's correct. where I got my grad degree oh you did oh awesome nice nice yeah yeah I work as an academic advisor there um for undergrad and obviously I haven't been in office for almost a year so I'm Mm -hmm. working from home now but um it was always funny because my dad my dad's retired but he'll still pick up jobs um casting jobs or things like that so in my lunch hour I'd be going from like you know talking to her. Art professor at SAAC and then just like going across the street and bullshitting with one of my dad's old friends. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Um as I you know, I had to pick up some jobs for him. So it's jewelers row has always been sort of central to my life for whatever reason. Yeah, I feel
0: like if you want to know what Chicago is, that's a good place to start is to go to Jewelers Row and Yeah. Just kind yeah. of wander around.
2: I it's- you know, in the back of my mind, there's like I want to be older, my kids will be older. I I do want to write a novel about something about George oh god, yeah. Something yes, like please. That. Yeah, yeah.
1: Please yeah. do. <laughs> well, it's kind of tucked away from there's so many things are sur- that surround it that are, you know, super touristy, and that everyone mm-hmm. who comes to Chicago goes to, you know, you either go to Chicago Theater or you're gonna go to Millennium Park or whatever. But then like just right there like tucked in there it's it's so special
2: Mm i don't know well yeah those buildings you know those buildings on wabash um in particular like a lot of them are being changed and you know they're they're jewelers row is it's it's still really big um but you know there's a labyrinth you have casters you have diamond setters you have polishers you have the people on the ground floor who are the wholesale and sellers you have this whole like sort of vertical you know sort of integrated economic system that's been there for 100 plus years, largely because it's, you know, it's a place where immigrants can work immediately. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a knowledge that you bring with you wherever. So, um, and for me, as a little kid, it, my dad, uh, when I worked there as a little kid um, or in through high school, I would basically deliver, pick up. And I guess I'm like 41, I'm still picking up jobs for my dad, so <laughs> it hasn't changed much. Um, but when I was a kid, I would bring my skateboard downtown with my dad and then i could you know deliver faster so i was always like i was always the you know delivering and there's the novel man yeah right and and, you know my dad would always tell me what alleys to not go down oh amazing um and which ones to and who to avoid and you know my dad had a whole walk that he made um, (laughs) when he'd have to carry work home you know there's this whole system that jewelers had where they're like watching to see so they don't get robbed and stuff so i would just tell my dad like no one's gonna rob a kid on a skateboard if i'm you know skating down the middle of Wabash. So he trusted me with a shitload of jewelry. Awesome. Like, oh my god! Like, you know, I'd be weaving in and out. And so like, <laughs> no one's going to bother with it. Kid. So my dad thought I was an asset.
0: <laughs> Brilliant.
1: What does a caster do exactly? So um, excuse me for not knowing, but no, what, does yeah. a, what does a jewelry caster do?
2: So the caster, they, they cast the metals, they cast the gold and the silver. Um, so they're, you know, my dad largely did work as a caster. And so you have these like big casting machines um and then you make these like i won't go into too much of details but like you know one piece of jewelry is not made individually but they have these trees you know it can be like 20 20 pieces on a mat on sort of like a wax mold and then then you cast it and then so then that's how the metal metal like you know jewelry metalsmithing in a way got it yeah and my sister she's a caster now Oh, my awesome. youngest sister. So wow. I think my dad knew early on I was much more interested in skateboarding and uh, <laughs> si- sitting <laughs> you know, with a torch and this small desk and sort of like looking at the intricacies of, of, of how to be a caster. But my sister does now. So that's, that's awesome. awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nice.
0: <laughs> Your book got uh, no small amount of great press and attention. Um, how did that feel after so long working on it?
2: Yeah, I you never know. And this is, of course, anybody... With stories or book, there's especially during a pandemic. I think my primary goal during a pandemic was just, um, just hoping it didn't get completely buried. Yeah. Um, so everything else beyond not being completely buried was sort of like, um, it felt like a T bone accident, but in a good way. I (laughs) I just totally took me um, by surprise, especially after working on something, like you said, I worked on it for seven years and then, you know, the publishing process itself is like another year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just absolutely a thousand percent grateful that my editor and agent let me work on the story I wanted to work on. Um, and that people read it. I, you know, I, am still kind of stunned by it because, um, I've been, every time I've been able to like have like a great talk about it or do an event, it's been in sort of the backroom office. we we Mm -hmm. just moved into a new house but like all of that was during the pandemic just sort of in in the back room so it still feels a little surreal and I still feel like I don't know who um I don't know who's read it or not (laughs) even when I talk to people it it still feels a little surreal because I haven't been able to talk to people in person about it (laughs) there's gonna have to be a paperback
0: tour yeah
2: yeah we're having they delayed the paperback to July perfect so I'm hoping to just be able to talk Talk to people yes. <laughs> in person. Uh but but I am I'm I'm a thousand percent grateful because I also think it's not um it's not you know, I think it was as my editor says, you know, it's not something that normally gets traditionally published with the big house, um with HarperCollins So I'm 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 happy they took a chance on it.
0: But you know, that's changing, right? And I think it it's is, it's yeah. it's especially this past year, it's like I see it. I see these conversations happening, you know, like I have a book out on submission right now Nice. and um, it's, I really do feel like, and, and your book, you know, it, it hits on a lot of the things, a lot of the things that people are talking about right now and, and, mm. you know, like, and trying to understand better, um, like the themes that you were talking about, like exile and, you know, what it means to be a refugee in your own country, yeah. you know, and, um, or to be treated like a refugee in your own country. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think, you know, I would hope that this is like, yes, that's true. Like, you know, it used to be white men, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) well,
2: yeah. And, you know, and for me, like, I I don't have an MFA, Uh, you know, I grew up first generation working class. So the idea that I could potentially have that as a goal in my life came rather late, you know, I didn't start really taking writing prose more seriously until my 30s, you know late twenties, early thirties. So it it was something i never knew. I mean, my original goal for doing this was um, as you know, I um, co-started make literary magazine um, and I moved on a lot, you know, the whole new awesome generation has taken it over and Sarah Dotson apologies for that. Sarah Dotson is amazing. And she is the executive director of it, but like my she's goal awesome. was she's, she's amazing. But my original goal was to just like beg Sarah to like publish it as a serial.
0: Oh, so I, that was wow. like my, that was
2: like my original, Sort of intention, and and then someone had mentioned you maybe try to get an agent first. Uh, so. <laughs> You're like, okay, <laughs> all right, That's I mean, my arm. I guess. <laughs> um, I, just I, I, I just want to uh, reiterate.
0: I just want to reiterate. You don't have an MFA. Correct. You taught for ten years mm-hmm. before you started writing this, but you I mean, started. I was okay, writing
2: while I was teaching too. Yeah.
0: Okay, and you started a literary magazine, and. Then you wrote this novel and it got you got an agent and it got published and and you're teaching at Northwestern because I feel like that's something that people don't you know don't get to hear a lot about mm-hmm. like the non traditional non MFA path yeah um, that I think a lot of people are are um, very interested in yeah I'm necessarily I, going to MFA you know
2: I you know and it was something because you know more and more I met writers of course through Make I, I you know the more and more people tell tell me that they were going to get into MFA it was really hard for me when I was a younger writer. Um, to imagine paying for something like that. And I think mm-hmm. that if I had been older and a different position, or I really think, you know, being first generation, being a person of color, like you're, you don't grow up with an expectation that you get like a master's. You don't grow up with an expectation of like paying for something that you could be doing on your own. So mm-hmm. for better or worse, um, you know, I think. You know, MFAs do produce extraordinary writers and, and, but I don't think it's necessary. I think if you really commit to your art and have a job. Um, and like I said, I had, I had a union job, right? So that stability for me felt like I could go home and write. Um, the instability of like stopping the job and getting an MFA felt a little like discongruous for me or something. It felt like it would, I you know, it felt if I'm saying it out loud like this, it felt like it would be a non-continuation of what I was already doing. So, mm. I, but yes, it's possible. Yes, for those people, listening, I really, truly think at the end of the day, um, and I'm not an optimist by heart, <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of an existentialist <laughs> by heart, but that if, you, if, you're, if your real focus is the words on, on, on the paper, if your real focus is on trying to be the best reader you can, um, agents who by and large don't have masters are looking for the best stories. And mm. I, I do believe that. Um, and, and I think that's a commitment that pre and post MFA is the same, is the same. Um, and I think there's a lot of revolutions happening in the workshop now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I'll be I'll be teaching um, at Northwestern. That'll be my first workshop outside of Story Studio that I've taught. So I'm sort of trying to figure out how to invent that for myself.
0: <laughs> and have you read Matt Salis' book?
2: I have it. It's you on the back okay. I do, yeah, because I've Excellent. heard amazing things about yeah, it's it. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's a message too, like, whether you know whether someone goes and gets an MFA or not, I, I think it is changing, and I think particularly for people who grow up and work in working class, like it's 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 a it's a hard way to think about having access to that. And right. I think that conversation um, is just madly critical. And, you know, I always say there's two things that have reinforced the fact that I'm a socialist: is one is being a writer, mm. and the other is being a parent. Mm. Um, because if we had universal programs these conversations wouldn't be so tough. Do I get an MFA or not, right? Because you have mm-hmm. health insurance, you have access to cheap, great education. And, you know, so trying to think about how those things would make like a literary renaissance. I'm convinced if we had universal health care, if we had affordable parental care, we would just have the most freaking amazing books. Oh, if healthcare it, otherwise... wasn't tied to
1: employment? I mean, just that just that alone. Yeah. If healthcare wasn't tied to employment, I think about how much that would change art that yeah. would be made in this country Yeah, i couldn't agree yeah. with you more on that
0: yeah and, we can't afford childcare, so um yeah. i just <laughs> i just write when i when i can and yeah. also there's a pandemic yeah <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah i i mean i haven't i i start i'll share with this little parents but i um i started another novel this month <gasps> awesome. i haven't written i haven't written in a year and a half you know the pan. my or youngest son is a year and a half and then the pandemic happened you know I, we had an infant and then the pandemic working from home with two kids. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was able to write like essays here and there, but between supporting the first book the events and stuff like that, there was no way I had any time for writing. Um, That's awesome, Mike. uh,
0: I'm so happy to hear that you're, you're back in it this month. Yes. Yeah. At the beginning of the month, (laughs) I do think it's important, you know, like to give your, like, I think it was great that you gave yourself that year and a half. Not that it was your choice, and not that it was great for you, right. but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fact that you had that space, yeah. I yeah. think, was probably good as well. And it, it's also <laughs> nice to throw
2: away something. So before that year and a half, I probably had like seventy, eighty pages of a novel, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I threw it away. And it felt good to throw it away last month. Yeah, it, it wasn't the right. It wasn't the right book that I wanted. I feel like the one I want to write obsessively and weirdly is. I'm just envisioning like a 150 page monologue and, you know, there's so much to figure out, but that's, I think, I like starting with a feeling. Does if that yeah, makes sense, you know, yeah, of course. For sure. so much talk about craft, but you know, all the, all the pieces make the whole somehow. And I, I finally have sort of that feeling again, that I had like six or seven years ago with the other one. So we'll see. That's awesome. Maybe I'll throw it away. I don't, I don't <laughs> know, but I, I, I like the fact that I'm squeezing a little time out to right now
0: yeah I think sometimes you have to write those things to know this is the wrong thing right like yeah I uh I studied the method in the in New York City for a while mm-hmm. um at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute and I had oh, to do cool. that to know that I didn't want to do that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a this process of omission yeah <laughs> that's right
2: the human brain likes to exclude right like uh-huh. we like to like we want to figure out what we don't want in our lives
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right last question who's your favorite writer
2: Oh, this is so hard. My absolute favorite writer is Roberto Bolaño. Okay. Um, so Pretty, pretty. Uh, yeah, I almost quit. Like, I almost gave up on writing fiction until I read 2666. Wow. I really like, I was at the point where I was writing for the stage and that felt fun. It, it didn't give me sort of the, the doubt and fiery energy and weirdness that fiction does. But I, it, it, it was, I, I read that book and I was like, shit. there's nothing I will ever do that will even come close to a page of this. So that was actually liberating to Mm. read like a masterpiece that just fit with your brain so much. Like incandescently, I was like, I'm just, it's okay. It's okay to write. There's nothing that's going to be like two, six, six, six. So it's okay to write.
0: (laughs) I love that nihilistic or fatalistic, (laughs) you know, attitude. I I had the same thought the other day I was typing and I was like, Uh nothing, nothing, truly exists yeah so it's, it's fine <laughs> <laughs> so liberating just, it was it was very liberating
2: yeah um and my favorite book of all time is Don Quixote so another mm-hmm. sort of classic but it, I've the joy of reading that book is just.
0: that's great. by um James Patterson
2: the that's um, I'm that just is kidding. correct yeah he, he <laughs> has a new one where he revisits <laughs> it's just from San Pancho Sancho's dreams <laughs> 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 like a detective story, yeah. Exactly. I would read that actually.
0: <laughs> yeah. Who wouldn't, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on. Um, this was a true pleasure. Thanks
2: for coming where, on, Mike.
0: Very where funny. should people go if they want to find you?
2: Um, I have website Michaelsapata.com um Excellent. and please find me at any independent bookstore when we get vaccinations i just that's all i want to do in chicago yeah and i i do have the paperback is is coming out um first week in july july 6th i think so i'm hoping 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 um you know depending on the end of the empire and if it speeds up or slows down if we could do in-person events but yeah
0: yay i hope so <laughs>
2: um absolute pleasure you know it's especially cool to talk to people you know Who, um, you know it was just such a pleasure Alex to have you in my classroom and talk about literature and Lindsay such a pleasure years ago to to see your work early on and uh, just want to say like everything I've seen since has just been just awe awe stopping and just mouth gapingly awesome so I I just love keeping an eye on everyone's work and and just so happy that we get to be part of the same community
0: likewise I'm so happy for you and so happy that this book blew up the way it did
2: thank you thank you absolutely (laughs)
1: that was a really good one i really uh yeah it was fun had a different vibe in a great way
0: i love talking to chicago people
1: Mm, yeah for sure
0: he's like he's just chicago personified
1: he is he is uh it was so uh, impactful doing that little bit of student. I think it was only a month or a month and a half student teaching with him at that high school, but it, I was just blown away at the effort he had to expend every day to do his job well. And he did it well every time I was there with him. And that was just like <laughs> staggering. That's um, why,
0: you know, like teachers are incredible and I feel like they get a bad yeah. rap, but when they're, when they're good, they're good. Ben used to teach. Yeah. Think you remember did was it high school as well? It was seventh grade social studies. Oh my god! (laughs) Yeah, is he he really good at uh, cross country? Wow. Okay. Cross country.
1: Okay. Uh, Is he really good at uh, geography? Does he know all the all the countries on the map?
0: Totally. I horrify him sometimes because I'm like, "Is that in Kansas?" And he's like, "What?" Oh my god!
1: (laughs) I'm really bad at geography.
0: (laughs) Me too. I went to school in Florida. Okay. (laughs)
1: you know where florida is <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah on the right over there
0: but yes uh, the last book of adonna moreau is um is like science fictiony and mm. like a parable and um and then like straight up narrative but it's very like we talked about this a little bit there's you know it's a novel as written by storytellers and you can you can so i feel like um Saul's, the character Saul's grandfather is based on Studs Terkel. I mean, I should have asked him that, but, um, so, you know, if you're a fan of Studs Terkel and you're a fan of, you know, sci-fi and, and quantum physics and
1: all that. It's a a book for a lot of different kind of readers. It is. It is.
0: And I think like the book changes too, um, because the tone of the first, like the first bit, the first part of it where they're telling the story about Maxwell and Adana from the bit that he read today, um, it's vastly different from when you then read about, um, you know, Saul's quest to find the the sun. Um, and there's there's like this magical quality to it because in some cases, I found myself wondering like, are we in the multiverse? or is this <laughs> like, so anyway, um, it's a very fun read. I listened to it. the we were talking about this with Mike, but the woman who read the book was um a delight and did such a great job, so. Nice. Get it, or get it in paperback in July. Yeah.
1: I did not know you studied at the Lee Strasberg whatever.
0: I, you know, I think back on it, and I, like, I was so young. I was, uh, how old was I? 20, maybe? And um, I had been freshly heartbroken, and I, I, I just like, I tried to capitalize on my time as much as possible. The best thing about it was I worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art while I was there. Yeah. And so like, I got to like, I'd clock in in the back and I'd get to walk through their like long back hallways where they have just like art leaning up against the walls, like famous art, you know, like that's where they keep things. And I got, I had access to all these things. And like, I got to be there during their, um, not the Met ball, but like another fancy night And that to me, was like, it taught me how to go look at art and how to like, be comfortable around that. Cause I just randomly, like another person studying at Strasburg was like, I can get you a job at the Met. And I was like, huh? (laughs) But it was, (laughs) it was so wonderful. And, um, I, you you know, I lived in, uh, hell's kitchen actually in a woman's residence, On 34th, between 8th and 9th, I believe, or 9th and 10th, I can't remember, but it was a women's residence. It was like insanely cheap. It was like 300 bucks. Maybe it was 300 bucks a week or 300 bucks every two weeks, but to live right in Manhattan and pay that was pretty good. And I went on auditions and I made a a student film with some kids from NYU and I tried to get hired by MTV. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> how old, are we talking like 18 19 20 how old are you i was 20 20
0: yeah i was 20 and then and then i i was writing the whole time i kept i was writing 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 and and just like getting worn down and just like seeing like one of the students at the theater institute um or no he wasn't one of the students he was like he was cast as the dentist in the student film okay. um and he was like in his 60s and he you know, like he had never gotten the, like the job, you know? And I was like, do I like, do I love this enough to to spend like the next 30 years of my life? Like, you know, not getting the job. Um, and I didn't, I, I realized I didn't love it that much. Um, like I love performing and I, and I, you know, you, you know that I still perform mm-hmm. whenever I can, but, um, I think now, like with, I think I would be a much better actress now at age 40 than back then. Um, yeah. But there were also like lots of, like, I was trying to get ahead of myself and my flaws. And maybe I mean? was like, you know, like I was trying to be like, well, I, I was trying to count myself out before I should have been counted out. Oh, I, tr- oh. I, th- I think I do that to myself a lot, but, um, and I was taking a TV auditioning class or TV acting class. And I sucked so hard the first half of it. And then I started, um, and, the, and the teacher was this casting agent um, who was like notoriously hard. And um, then I just started talking to her about like films I loved and actors I loved. And she had happened to cast one of the films that we were talking about. So she like warmed to me, but by the time, like she was going to ask me to be her assistant but I had already decided to go back and finish college
1: back to UCF. back to.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, so I think about that sometimes and I'm like, well, my, my life might, might've been very different, but I, I, you know, I prefer Chicago to New York anyway. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Did you get any work done this week?
0: Yes, I did. Oh, awesome. I certainly did. Yeah. I actually, um, I, I got all my normal work done and then I, I'm i working on some other little side things. Um, Like I might possibly want to write a screenplay uh, mm. for eat only when you're hungry, but I don't know. I have to think yeah, about that. So I'm kind of yeah. starting that process. And then oh I applied to a residency, a parent's residency. Um, That's great. And as I was applying to that, I felt very silly, but right. you still have to go through with it. I don't know, you know, I think I'm getting ahead of myself again, but, but yeah, you have to, you have to put yourself out there, you know, and then, you know, that's how we, that's how you, I feel like people are always like, how do I start writing? How do I like become Mm -hmm. a writer? And it's, it's just a bunch of little steps or a bunch of little, like, let me try this or let me try that.
1: Yeah, That's what I think about all the time. It's like, you just have to keep trying, (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
1: just keep doing it. Eventually something will happen or not. But that's or like okay. a
0: bunch of things will happen at once and you'll be completely overwhelmed, but you'll get through that as well.
1: Right. Everything will be maybe okay.
0: Right. <laughs> I was telling my kids, I was telling my whole family about, oh, and I, I did my application for this parents weekend. And Parker, my oldest was like asking me about that. Like, what does that mean? What do you do? And I explained like, well, it just gives you, you know, like a longer weekend to really focus on your work. And he goes, but mom, you'll be away from us. <laughs> oh. And I was like, oh, whoops. (laughs) Whoopsie. (laughs) Precious. What about you?
1: Uh, Let's see. No, I got no work done. Hmm. Uh, I can't even, I'm having trouble remembering what I read this week. I'm having trouble. I just, I don't know, this week I, I feel like I hit a wall mentally where I was just like in a fugue state watching hockey.
0: That's good. I feel like you're, I feel like our brains need that.
1: Yeah definitely.
0: I was just going to say, I took a 10 minute cool down ride today on my Peloton where all my pillow heads at. I know people love my Peloton (laughs) content, so I'm just going to try to incorporate it as much as possible, but, um, and it was all Disney songs. There's this one, like a couple of them really loved Disney, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a couple of the instructors, but anyway, it was all Disney songs and it was an utter delight. It was like just 10 minutes of writing slow, listening to Disney music And I was like, why don't I let myself do these kinds of things more often? I feel like I'm constantly like, you've got to go, 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 you know, like push, push, push. And not not just on my Mm -hmm. beloved Peloton, but in life, like writing and, you know, like you need that rest. You need that brain break, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. I, (laughs) okay. So I'll be a little bit more honest about what I was doing. I was like. (laughs) <laughs> watching hockey. But when uh-huh. I say watching hockey, what I mean was I went back and I was going to rewatch the entire 1996 Stanley Cup and take notes on it for some reason. Oh. Like, not like I'm going to write about it. Just like I'm like, I want to make sure I really know all the beats here so that if I ever get into a conversation, I can like rattle all this off. And then I started doing it and I was like, but I mean, that I, I do that kind of thing if I'm watching sports. But I was like, what the fuck am I doing I like I can't even like so I can relate to what you're saying like it's hard to just kind of do nothing I feel like mm-hmm. I don't know if that comes out of like writer brain or not it probably does but
0: yeah maybe just because we yeah. always have to be the ones to motivate ourselves
1: oh I didn't think about it that way
2: yeah and
0: we're just like I know that we've talked about this before but like constantly terrified of falling into a, like a I suck trap you know oh yeah or like I'm lazy or I'm you know
1: Definitely.
0: And I used to like, Definitely. I used to, I used to try, like I would snap awake. This has been, this has happened to me since I was a kid, I would snap awake and I'd be like, what are you doing with your life? Or like, you're going to die one day. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I think I live in fear of that. So if that happens now, I'm like, well, I wrote my words and I applied to the thing and I started the other thing and I did, did the other thing. Yeah. And you can he go back a, to sleep. You did a bunch of the things. Yeah. And fed my children.
1: They're still alive. They're doing great. They're playing in the snow. Everything's good. Oh
0: my god! So much snow. So much snow. More snow tonight. Yeah, I know. Save us.
1: Save us. Does uh, anyone want have... to hire
0: me or Alex to teach somewhere warm?
1: Yeah, yeah. We'll come. Yeah, sure. Just a just a warm part of Chicago for me. I don't want to sell this house we just bought. But yeah.
0: You know. <laughs> okay, fine. Is
1: there like a basement somewhere? <laughs> I have something. Yay. I'm going to read a poem. Um, okay. um, I reached out to a friend, Elisa Gabbert. I asked her, yes. I was like, send oh, me a... I love her. She's the best. I was like, send me, send me something to read on the show. I don't know what to read. Something to yours, somebody else's, whatever. And she had me give her a word to help her figure something out. So I said, the word is forget. And she sent me a poem of hers. So I'm going to read that. Yes. Excellent. So this poem is called Genealogy... And then in such deep creases. I've known all my life that my father's uncle Joe was killed by his wife. It was almost a novelty story. A murder in the family. At 12 or 13, I learned she was a serial killer. Joe, the third husband, she poisoned with arsenic. He was 26 when he died of kidney failure. A handsome hero pilot, back home safe from the war. She brought him fresh juice every day in the hospital. I was in my thirties when I found out Joe's mother, my father's grandmother, my great grandmother was never the same. Joe was her favorite. Her life was ruined by grief. This woman, my great grandmother, her name was Geneva. I had forgotten. I have a black and white photo of Geneva wearing pants about to ride in a bucket in the Carlsbad Caverns. When our lives overlapped for five or six years she seemed already dead, still and silent. I was 40 when I learned there was no suspicion of murder until the wife's young daughter started getting sick too, a life insurance scam. They exhumed my father's uncle and Joe's older brother, my father's father, my grandfather, had to identify the body. We were in a restaurant when my father told me this. How long had he been buried, I said. Months, he said. Maybe a year. I thought of the word decay. These people, long dead, became yet more real. It's taken my whole lifetime to understand the real. They say, never forget, but you can't remember things you haven't experienced. You can't remember things you don't know, but you can remember things you don't know you know. My best friend gave me a kimono with such deep creases that they never came out in the wash, no matter how many times I washed it. It makes me think of a study I read about once that said butterflies remember being caterpillars. I wonder what I don't know I remember and how much room it's taking on the long boring drive across New Mexico. It's a good kind of boring, the miles of dead nothing and then a herd of tiny antelopes. They make me think of Auden's reindeer moving silently and very fast and they're altogether elsewhere. There's the elsewhere in the poem and the elsewhere of the poem. The deer are double elsewhere. The poem is not here. There's the past of the poem post-war poem and the past in the poem which is about the fall of rome which i never remember maybe now i will remember
0: damn it's awesome that's what i always say after everything you read
1: everything i always say it's awesome or it's great and it's how i honestly feel so i feel the same way i feel
0: the same way (laughs) thank you Alyssa.
1: yeah thanks for sending it to us
0: that's it onward more snow
1: onward more snow
0: more writing Some writing,
1: more waiting. Godspeed.
0: Godspeed. I'm a writer, but is recorded by Alex Higley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Because there's a pandemic out there, please wear a mask. Yeah, Yeah. Editing by Lindsay Hunter, music by Max Loop. Plus then I met Ben like I I got a job like three weeks after I landed back in Orlando. I I had this job at this restaurant slash movie theater and I spilled an extra large cup of sweet iced sweet tea on this woman's boobs and like in the credits to Charlie's Angels and I just never went back because I was so bad at that job and then I got miraculously got a job at Barnes and Noble and I met Ben on my first day. My God. And I was like, he is the funniest, weirdest person I've ever seen in my life. And then (laughs) a year later, I told him, okay, now you're my boyfriend. Oh my God. Mm -hmm.
1: What did he say to
0: you on the first day that you met, that you were working together? he's, he's right behind me. So he's so sick of me telling me, telling the story, but I, like, I was like bright eyed and bushy tailed, like ready to attack the world. I was going to, you know, just like take over Barnes and Noble. I was like back in school. I was going to do auditions in Orlando. I had all these ideas and plans and he, and I was like, you know, ramrod straight in my chair during break time, like eating my, I don't know, back then I ate nothing. So I was eating my nothing. And he just like, sauntered in flounced to his locker like ripped his lunch out of his locker threw it on the table like flopped into a chair he was like paul rudd in wet hot american summer when he has to pick up all the stuff he threw and like snapped open a newspaper in my face (laughs) Like i was like who is this angry person but then later he had to give us a store tour he had to give all the new hires a store tour And he just went from section to section and riffed on the kinds of customers who would shop that section. And it was the funny, honey, can you remember any of your bits? (laughs) He remembers something (laughs) about Princess Diana (laughs) and the genetics. No, not genetics. What's the hereditary stuff? (laughs) You know, when people are like, no, not geology, genealogy, genealogy. Yeah, he had some choice genealogy bits. And it was like the kind of humor that you rarely encounter. Like my sister had this best friend in high school named Robbie. And um, and I still talk to Robbie, and he was like the funniest person I had ever encountered. He was like funny on a different level than everyone else I knew, and that's how Ben, ben was. was. So it was like I God. recognized him as like a rare, a rare specimen. I and I just, yeah, I just followed him around. And he was very popular. He was like the most popular bookseller. <laughs> even even though he was in his dad's hand-me-downs with his butt cut. <laughs> he's laughing. <laughs> but it was like when my mom first saw him, uh-huh. she was like, Lindsay, if I was you, I would make him mine. And I was like, mom, he's Ben, you know, like he's my friend, whatever. But then like, it was just like, I couldn't. I couldn't spare him i had to uh, <laughs> i had to have him
1: <laughs> that's the best
0: yeah oh my god i'm gonna cut all of that
1: <laughs> yeah no that's good you can cut all that
0: <sighs>